Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Keir Milbin, and I'm joined by my very good friend, Nadia Idle. Hello. And my other very good friend, Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today, as the nights draw in, as the days get shorter, we're going to tackle the very cosy topic of sleep. Nadia... This is your idea, wasn't it? This is a great idea, I think, sleep as a topic. But why did you want to talk about it? I guess I'm interested in sleep because it's something we spend a quarter to a third of our lives doing, and it's inextricably linked to our short and long-term physical and mental health. And it's something that every human being does and needs. But we don't seem to be spending enough time talking about it as a subject. So I guess I want to politicize sleep and understand its relationship with early capitalism and late capitalism, where we're living now, um, and yeah, and politicize it. So I want to discover through doing this episode what the progressive anti-capitalist position on sleep is. And is sleep a natural obstacle to capitalists, you know, value expansion? I think it probably is. Um, and it also just provides a sleep providers with an interesting lens through which to talk about, you know, capitalism and capitalism's discourses and, and needs and dynamics in general. But also, I think we can explore sleep's relationship to work more specifically, but also leisure and maybe how those things have changed over time in Britain or as, you know, as much as, you know, evidence we can find out about that. Specifically, I'd like to explore this crazy statistic that we came across that 7.5 million people, I think it was, in Britain habitually get less than five hours sleep a night, which is way less than, you know, what uh, an adult should be getting. I think the recommended uh, is something between seven to nine in general. Uh, and when it's habitually less than that, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's mental that so many people are not getting enough sleep. But also going back to, I think, like theory and philosophy, the vast majority of of philosophy and theory is is pegged around this paradigm of the awake and non-sleeping subject. So there isn't, you know, very much written about sleeping. So, you know, I think we should start a trend. And then following on from all of that, how sleep shows up in culture, like what sort of discourses develop um, as either coping mechanisms Or even, you know, the narratives we tell ourselves about the sort of people we are and the sorts of people other people who don't sleep like we sleep are and when and how that differentiation occurs. So I guess, you know, I've spent half of my life living in the UK and half of my life living in Egypt. And it's clear that the way people relate to and talk to sleep in everyday life is is quite different. And my theory is that it, you know, transcends things like class and gender. But also, I think I thought about this topic because, you know, as you mentioned, Keir, we're now you know in autumn winter and and I love sleeping it is it's one of my favorite activities you know and I prior, prioritize that but it's it's not really okay to admit that in the UK unless it's it's linked to like partying all nights or your, or your kids keeping you up and therefore you need you need all this sleep it's it's a bit naff to admit that you'd rather be asleep than doing xyz and so yeah those are some of the reasons why i'm interested uh, in talking about sleep today so that's me what about you guys well i think that sleepiness is all woke nonsense if you ask me <laughs> we'll talk about that later <laughs> but, no, but that, that that idea of like woke is like this this derogatory term but it sort of picks up on this general trend of thinking about activity of valorizing activity and well consciousness actually because sleep is basically it's not unconsciousness it's when the the conscious brain is not fully in control etc so we could we could talk about that sort of area as well i i think what about you jim i mean fundamentally we don't we don't have a society in which things are organized such that adults can really look after themselves basically especially people with children they just you literally i mean contemporary working patterns and patterns of social reproduction and uh, childcare they just literally don't leave behind they don't leave a situation whereby most adults with children are physically able to do all the stuff they need to do to keep a roof over their heads and look after the kids and get enough sleep and exercise like especially if they want to have any sort of ordinary leisure 
you know, it's kind of extraordinary that we can't, there's a repeated, I would say, near near hysterical tone to the sort of medical pronouncements we hear about the kind of crisis of sleep. I mean, it's a really common thing. About about every eighteen months, I'll see something in the press or the news about some report saying people are just not getting enough sleep. Like the quality of sleep and the amount of sleep that especially working adults are getting, but also increasingly teenagers actually, because so many of them are on their phones all night. It's just not bad. It's just chronically unhealthy, according to medical professionals. But this is never framed. This is never, ever, ever situated alongside any real attempt to explain why this is happening. And insofar as there is an explanation, it's this sort of unbelievably childish sort of technological determinism, as I just have indicated, actually. You know, the reason people aren't sleeping is because they're spending too much time on screens. But there's no, there's no real analysis. Well, why is that? And more than anything else, just, you know, how, how is this connected to a whole set of social and political arrangements and decisions that have been made over the past few years that have produced that situation? It's an issue that should be politicised. But again, it's, I mean, it's one that people don't like to think about because I sort of think if we're going to live in a society in which the standard model of childcare is that the responsibility, most of the responsibility for looking after the kids is entirely um, devolved onto their two biological parents, and you figure out how much time that involves. And then you say, what would it be like for people to be able to do that and have just like a couple of hours in the evening of leisure, yeah, without the kids, after they've gone to sleep, and to be able to get enough exercise to be actually healthy. The result of that calculation would be that, I mean, it's, people shouldn't really be working more than four hours a day. Like there isn't really time to work more than that if you're going to do all that stuff. And of course, nobody wants to confront, nobody wants to think about the fact that we're living in a society where it's, more, it's normal for people to work more than eight hours a day. And they should really only be working about half that. And, then, and just the gulf between what it would mean, actually, for this to be biologically healthy and, and where we are is so depressing. I think often even people you know, on the left, like we don't want to think about it. And I think that's sort of, to some extent, that not thinking about it and that sort of fetishization of you know, the, an ideal of sleeplessness, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or something. I think it is partly a displacement. It's partly a way of not having to stare in the face, like the awfulness of the actuality of the situation. I mean, perhaps one place we could also start is with our own relationships with sleep. Because I have a sort of problematic relationship with sleep. I used, to, I used to absolutely love going to bed and falling asleep when I was, a, when I was young, when I was a kid, and then even a teenager, actually. But then, you know, the last few decades, I had periods of insomnia, always linked really directly to stress basically feeling really stressed and then it was that it, that inability to turn your mind off and I've got into this habit where I have to I always read before I read a novel before falling asleep you know I have to read until my eyes droop and I've lost my place on the page perhaps I'll do that twice <laughs> and then I'll switch my, my switch the light off I have a little reading light that clips onto the book that gets us into like sleep cues, the cues you associate with sleep. But it's just really obvious to me that it's linked to stress and having too much going from my mind. Insomnia is one of those things which is it's a little bit like those angels in Doctor Who. If you look at them, they stay still. If you look away, they move and come towards you to try to kill you sort of thing. The thing about sleep is you can't think about it. If you start thinking about it and worrying about it, that's when you can trigger insomnia. So you have to sort of try to not think about or worry about insomnia or you will get it. Yeah, no, I love sleeping. You know, I grew up in the Mediterranean and everybody sleeps and I come from a family of early to bed, early to rise. But I have had, you know, through periods of of, of the year, if I'm having, you know, if there's something I'm sp- particularly stressed about, an issue with, you know, going to bed with my mind racing. But I wouldn't say that I've ever had a problem with insomnia. I think when I've had depressive episodes in my life if anything it's been the other way around it's been the that sleep is an escape from the conscious mind i don't know whether this is an overactive brain or not but i'm very very cognitively active first thing in the morning so it's almost like i feel like i need to fall asleep by a certain time because my brain's been doing too much in a way so it, it feels like i mean that might that might not scientifically be entirely correct that it makes sense for me that you know by about 8pm, I don't want to have a conversation with anyone. I want to wind down and, and go to sleep. And I think even though I don't feel like I've got a similar character to, to, to my Egyptian family that I grew up with, that whole kind of winding down towards sleep was something that I I definitely grew up with. And so I'm, you know, touch wood, quite a good, a good sleeper. I have had bouts where I've woken up in the middle of the night, but that's mostly related to alcohol, which is one of the main, main reasons that I basically don't drink anymore or very rarely drink. I mean, one thing I know that um, sleep scientists are 
fairly divided over is the question of just to what extent people's sleep patterns are sort of organically programmed because there is there's quite a strong body of evidence that like your circadian rhythms like your natural sleep rhythms are, are, are pretty much like built into your they're in your cells so according to this model anyway which is contested by some scientists but i think it's not contested by most of them as far as i understand it I think about 15% of people like naturally fall asleep really late like and get up really late and an equivalent number naturally get up really early and fall asleep really early. But then about 70% of people, or nat- if they're adults, naturally fall asleep about 11.30 and would sleep, should sleep till about 7 in the morning. You know, we're so laden with the habitual like cultural things that we attach to sleeping early or late and what it says about ourselves that we stop ourselves in in you know either direction or like you said uh, at the beginning Jeremy because we literally don't have the time to wind down is I need that I feel like I need that extra hour of you know scrolling or watching shit tv because I need to wind down or I need to do something that's not putting the kids to bed or working too hard etc. But the whole thing with like the circadian rhythms, I think it is. I think sleep is really interesting because it is one of those holdout moments in which our sleep is related to the various natural rhythms of well, the turning of the Earth on its axis, but also you know the the seasons, etc., where where night and day get longer and shorter. Yeah, where they do, where we, and this is where I'm interested in in, in this bit because you know it depends where you are in the world, and we've got this concept of what the day and the and the month and the year looks like if you live somewhere like the uk it's just not the same if you're somewhere equatorial Mm. and it's not the same if you're in the poles and it'll be interesting to see how you know the the relationship between literally where you are on the in the globe and you know what the what what the mode of production is and what what the politics of you know how capitalism operates uh, and then other things like you know age and and stuff how all of those things interact together I've been in Finland in the middle of summer for an academic conference and like everybody was going completely crazy because they couldn't sleep because nobody was sleeping for the after like three days. It's definitely the case if you go if you're used to being somewhere where there are longer nights and you go to somewhere where there's basically no night for some time of the year then it's really really hard to sleep I mean it's most people can't I've been to the polar area in uh, in midsummer and it was a weird experience to be like 11 30 and to be sleepy and not know why and then you look at your clock and you're like right that's why uh, but but yeah no my point my point is is basically are we able to train ourselves in and out of different ways of sleeping and is that directly linked to the needs that we have to be able to function in society you know to earn money etc so is there you know are there different ways of sleeping that can work for human beings or is it that you know this this model of a you know people need 7 to 9 hours sleep a night does that only apply to societies like ours where the where the seasons or the, the days and uh, nights are as short as long as they are so so that's i think the question for me like are these things variable because i'm really interested in this idea that perhaps over history you were saying jeremy that we're not sure if there, there is much um evidence for this there's some theory around the idea that in you know in the uk in a kind of pre-capitalist era there was the biphasic sleep this two sleep idea which was also apparently found in other places of the world where you have this early sleep between 9 p.m and 11 p.m and then people actually got up and did stuff and then they went back to sleep in the early hours and then got up again and apparently that's where you know the term of like being wakefulness was called the watch and there's all of this concept of not on my what my watch and stuff around what what used to happen and what people used to get up to in the kind of the middle of the night in the UK which I think is really interesting because you know if you think about that in terms of its relationship with capitalism well capitalism needs you not to do that but maybe it worked for you know agrarian societies in the past and when the idea of the clock and waking and sleeping on the clock becomes a thing and, and alarm clocks were not invented before 1787 apparently well the most obvious song for us to talk about in an episode about sleep is the beatles i'm only sleeping this groundbreaking piece of dream pop on their 
seminal album Revolver 1966 undoubtedly the Beatles best album I'm sorry I know Pete, I know Pete, it's now fashionable to think it boring to say that that's the Beatles best album because it was critical orthodoxy for such a long period that it was but it simply was clearly the best album and I, I'm only sleeping it is really I mean it's sort of fascinating it's this it's this deliberately dreamy track it's quite self-consciously articulating a position which is counterposed to the sort of masculinist you know, valocentric energy of rock music it's a really early example of what critics like simon reynolds and joy press would later see as this sort of feminine tradition in rock in rock music which is sort of psychedelic and cosmic and kind of anti-heroic but in a in a pleasant way and it's clearly is closely related to the fact that they're, they're experimenting a lot with weed and acid at this point as well so really fascinating record a great tune talked before on this show about E.P. Thompson's work on clock time, etc. He wrote this article, uh, Time, Work, Discipline and Industrial Capitalism, which is just really, really famous about, you know, how the introduction of capitalism involved this huge transformation in how we understood time, you know, our relationship to time. Whereas previously, these sort of like cyclical uh, ideas of time linked to things like, you know, the rotation of the Earth around the sun and the rotation of the Earth around its axis, etc., so time was experienced in this sort of like cyclical way, but also in a sort of task-based way. So that we'd have conceptions of time which are related to certain tasks. So the one I always like to talk about is a sleeping, a, a, no, a pissing while is a particular period of time. A what? A pissing while. I'm just off uh, for a piss. <laughs> I won't be long. Piss- I'll be a pissing while. Presumably right. shorter than a shitting while. <laughs> um, where you'd have to go a bit further away, perhaps. <laughs> and then you know basically when you get the when you get early capitalism and the creation of the cities and people get 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 pushed off the land through the enclosure of the commons and so forth into the new cities where the new factories are then they have to get introduced to this completely new conception of time which is like clock time so you have to be at the factory gates at at nine o'clock and that will not follow the patterns of the seasons although we do have british summertime etc when the clocks go forward and back that's a completely new sort of conception of time and that, that surely must impact on our relationship to sleep this this idea of biphasic sleep presumably people went to sleep when it got dark because there weren't there's a couple know, of hours after dusk is my and i think the the most comprehensive study i've sort of seen or, or read a summary of on this historical theory that before the 17th century people it was normal for people to sleep in two main cycles it says that it was normally you'd go to sleep a couple of hours after dusk and you'd sleep for four hours, then you'd get up for an hour or two, then you'd sleep for another four hours. I mean, the, the evidence is fairly compelling and it's quite plausible. And I sort of, but it's also that one of the reasons like sleep doctors think it's interesting is because a lot of people, they think a lot of people who report insomnia, actually what's happening to them is they're, they're waking up at what is this fairly natural time to wake up sort of halfway through a sleep. And then instead of just thinking, well, this is normal, I'll just do some stuff for an hour or so, then sleep for another four hours, they're sort of panicking about the fact they're not getting their seven or eight hours. And I mean, one of the arguments that's made in relation to this is it's actually, you have to have an incredibly highly trained body, like as an adult, let's say as a child, to like stay asleep for like eight hours like without getting needing a snack or without going to the toilet or anything like that and it's also it creates a lot of anxiety in people who feel that they should be doing that and they're not and and that's one of the one major cause of sleep dysfunction according to this theory which is quite interesting but what were people doing in the middle of the night <laughs> i mean i can i can imagine there was a lot of sex going on but yeah exactly so that's one of the things they said it's really good time for sex really good yeah. time for like 
like kind of house admin tasks apparently that was another thing yeah people were doing like they would set themselves certain tasks also like a chat because a lot of people slept in the same bed often uh apparently if you had visitors or or you know whatever you could have one massive bed and there were rules about who slept in what order this is the uk i'm talking about where the the research that i've i've read but 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 yeah this idea that there were you know there were some kind of like tasks that were set for that time and even and prayer of course yes of course yeah Sex and prayer, the two yeah, cornerstones good. of any <laughs> <laughs> civilized. <laughs> but it, but it is because it's also relate, re- related to the access to light, isn't it? Because you know we're talking about pre the, the pre electricity, way probably yeah. pre pre gas lighting. So this is like we're talking about candles, which presumably were relatively expensive, and you know give give out that much light. So that limits the amount of tasks you can do, and probably dictates much more when you would when you'd want to go to sleep presumably being exhausted because you're doing hard work in the fields at certain times of the year less hard at other times you know presumably that's also a driver of sleep in in this sort of period yeah but it's interesting what we were saying before about like telling the time because you know like i, I mean it's the same with place as in not everybody uses northwest south east or whatever in countries like egypt where it's in the cities it's like a modern uh, whether you're in cairo for example these are modern cities and people have clocks and everybody's got mobile phones and smartphones etc the, the time is still told by the five calls for prayer and that's just in common that's nothing to do with how religious you are it's it's you know it's it's how people talk and of course those times shift depending on when sunset and sunrise is but everybody knows that but it's still how time is told and it probably relates to how people sleep as well because you know if you're if you're doing the mid midnight prayer as you know Jeremy pointed out then you get up especially if it's Ramadan or some a religious month you get up in the middle of the night pray have something to eat and go back to bed wow, that's really interesting I'm quite excited about this. I, I want to try this now. I'm going to try that like two phase sleep. Biphasic sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how is that going to How are you going to do this under late capitalism? You need to report back and tell us. We need to have a follow up episode. Yeah. Well, I've got a pretty flexible schedule most of the time. So we can well, let's schedule the next ACFM recording for, for 11 p.m. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> right. I think we should play Where Did You Sleep Last Night? the Nirvana version from their amazing 1994 MTV Unplugged album. Um, it was a real stellar performance. Um, or they were covering the song by Lead Belly, I think, but apparently the song might be as old as um, 1880. Uh, it's quite a haunting song about jealousy and murder. Um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night by Nirvana. My girl, my girl, don't lie. Shall we talk about how a little bit more about how this functions in under capitalism? Like go back a little bit to talking mm, yeah, about yeah. you know the eight the eight hour work day, like what that does to sleep. Yeah, well, I mean, the eight-hour workday was uh, the end result of like a hundred year of struggle, basically, because it started off as a sixteen-hour workday in the early factories, and it went down to twelve. And the the, the struggle for the eight-hour day was one of the you know, it was the big struggle around the working class movement formed around. One way of understanding this relationship of sleep to capitalism is capitalism is predicated on on infinite growth basically capitalism is just the surplus is invested to create more surplus so it's got this self-expansive dynamic it always always grows and so marx talks about things in capital somewhere he talks about like capitalism sort of bursting every barrier that it comes across basically but like sleep is perhaps the one barrier it hasn't been able it was it's the one barrier it hasn't been able to eliminate it certainly encroached on it and started to dominate it when we talk about uh, insomnia and so forth so you could sort of see sleep as like the one holdout of that cyclical tempor- temporality against capitalism's drive to sort of dominate it or eliminate it to some degree. And there's been lots of research about people t- trying to work out how you, I- is it possible to eliminate sleep or the need, the body's need for sleep? I mean, exactly, which is why I feel like the, you know, sleep is an anti-capitalist 
resistance in a way, because partly capitalism is unable to extract full value from, you know, labor because labor needs to go to sleep. Hence AI and all of these other, you know, potential arguments that are that are put out there for, you know, if humans can't do this 24 hours a day, then we need to get this task done by something that can. But of course, this falls into the whole productivity discourse, you know, as well as, you know, some of the microdosing discourses of, you know, if I could just be more efficient or I could be more productive uh, yeah. doing this one thing where, you know, and again, as we spoke about before on the show, the whole like self-help agenda around that, which, you know, some of which is quite centered around that productivity. Yeah, but we're, we are, or rather, I should say, I am absolutely caught up in that drive to be productive and active all the time. We don't sit outside this. Obviously, we're, we're caught up in these things as much as possible. Does that, so does that make you not sleep enough, do you think? I'm not sure. It's just thinking about sleep as just this period of like, of inactivity and like, you know, and, and, and like basically non-consciousness is, is another way to put it. And basically I, it made me think about how much I valorize activity and being busy all the time. One of those moments when you sort of recognize that you're obviously being caught up in forces that are bigger than you. But this is exactly what I mean. I'm, I'm really happy you said this because I don't feel the same way. Like I'm pro work, as in I think all human beings need to work. My problem is with wage labor and the way that value extraction is organized under capitalism, right? But I think human beings need to work, whatever that work is. They need to like do stuff with their bodies. They need to be active, and they also need to you know have time for you know food. They have need to have time for you know affection and relationships, and they need to have time for sleep. That's what make makes healthy human beings. But I I don't have it ingrained anywhere in me that I am wasting my life if I'm not active all of the time. Like I just don't feel that way. In relate compared to sleep, like I think like I just really like sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't I don't think it's more important to be working than sleeping, but I understand that I need to work for money to survive. You know, a friend of mine, Brian, did a poster in the in the nineteen eighties, which got it got quite famous, went viral as they would say now. And it's basically a picture of a woman lying in bed, all cozy, etc. And um the words are I didn't go to work today, I don't think I'll go tomorrow. Let's take control of our lives and live for pleasure, not pain. <laughs> a real 1980s sort of dull culture sort of poster. But I, I, and I thought of that before this episode. I was thinking, yeah, that's a that is a. It's a in fact, it's a, it's a bit of a genius poster because it's like that. It's almost like militant drowsiness or something. Do you know what I mean? Trying to weaponize that. But that exists. That there is the whole. There's this whole movement. I can't remember which East Asian country it was. I tried to look this up and I couldn't find it because there was a, a few pieces written about this last year, where a whole set of young precarious workers they had this whole movement, and you know, there's a there's a term for it where they went on strike. Yeah, it's China. It's it's the laying down movement, isn't it? It's called. Yeah, yeah. where they're just like basically fuck this shit. Yeah. It's we're 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 supposed to be on all of the time with our precarious work. You know, where you're switched on working, checking your app to see if you need to go deliver something or whatever, and you don't have these kind of the kind of original capitalist idea of, you know, this is the time that that is work time. And then you have the workers time, whether it be like six hours or eight hours where you're not working. But now with a lot of precarious work, you're working all of the time or you're switched on to work all of the time. And yes, it, I think you're right. It was called the laying down movement where people are just like, fuck this. Yeah, yeah. Just like, fuck this. We're just going to yeah. lie down as a protest. That poster though, it's sort of the put there, I didn't go to work today. It's a real 80s sort of, poster <laughs> because there, because you know a lot of there was a big count, counterculture around dole culture and you know basically adopted very different rhythms and rejected the rhythms of work and that sort of stuff but in a way it's it, it's genius because it captures that moment of when the alarm clock goes off when the alarm clock seems like the voice of the boss do you know what i mean because you're in that sort of like why oh, i really don't want to get up and sort of if you can realize that like one of the reasons you're you're having to get up at this time when the body it doesn't seem right to your body it's because of these these dynamics of capitalism, which basically needs to grow all the time, which means basically needs to get more and more out of you all the time. You know that sort of sleepiness is a form of resistance. It, 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 but it's a, but like I was saying earlier, it's a very strange form of resistance because normally we associate resistance with you know self activity and consciousness about the world. Do you know what I mean? It, it seems like an odd form of resistance to me, sleepiness, and it, uh, its attributes totally go against the attributes I normally think about as resistance. This is in the tradition of like Lafargue's right to be lazy and 
and the the whole the anti work tradition that goes back to the nineteenth century and the moment of late nineteenth century sort of fan de siècle aestheticism not asceticism aestheticism sort of intersecting with the growing kind of revolutionary socialist movement and and there's you know there's a long tradition and there are lots of friends of the show who've talked who've written about this and idea that work itself is the thing that we should be resisting because it's a as i mean you said this on a really early show keith that work is a form of unfreedom mm. and from that point of view you know under the circumstances we're describing in which capitalism's drives that we include the determination to completely colonize every minute of the day and to take over every aspect of our life world and absorb every bit of our attention and our capacity for work whether we're actually working or not like under those circumstances that then indeed it becomes you know one one of the things you we're trying to reclaim in a bid for freedom is some autonomy from those processes and just the right or the ability the capacity to to rest to be lazy to be idle, to the right to be lazy, yeah, and and you know my namesake concept, you know, that talk about talking about idleness and what idleness is. Nadia, idle, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't believe it's my name. Hilariously, because I'm quite an active person. Right? Is that <laughs> some kind of joke? No, it's my surname. Um, you know, and and there's class stuff around that as well. Lots of class issues around that in the, in the UK about you know who has the luxury of being idle. Or was, or was able to to be idle, and and how that how that is viewed in in culture, and again back back to this point of like being active and like working hard, and the concept of working hard, and also you know the way you guys have just been talking about work. I mean, a, again, this is working for the boss work rather than work as I was talking about earlier, which is physically doing stuff as a human being, like whether it's you know tidying your house or like making art or like producing something or like cooking and a lot of the social reproduction stuff, or you know planting your garden. I'm not talking about like big things i'm talking about like stuff that i consider work because i i'm quite uh, as a how do i put this as a self-employed person like i'm quite i do a clock on and off which is interesting uh, in itself and then maybe i am brainwashed by capitalism but i put everything that i consider work underneath that and a lot of that is not paid work, and it's not wage labour. So, in, in in Marx and like Marxist tradition, it's like work in work in the way that me and Jen were talking about it, not the way you were talking about it, is opposed to to free activity, some something like yeah. that. Marx would put it, which, and I think that's probably more what you're you're getting at is that is that free activity stuff that freely chosen but it's activity. not all free it's it might be freely chosen but it goes it, this cycles back to what we were talking about before is that if we're starting from the point of view of accepting that human beings have certain needs right and in that in that catchment of needs is things like you no know, sleep food relationship to other human beings like etc like we need those to thrive as beings work like doing stuff I mean, let's call it doing stuff is is one of them and while it's not the same as like oh i'm going to go and create this amazing art project because some of that work might be cooking a meal or it might be you know taking care like wiping a child's bum do you know what i mean like some of it is not going to be all nice stuff that's freely chosen it's going to be work but it's not the same as working for labor and having to like the alarm clock goes off, you have to go to your workplace, you have to earn a, a wage because that's the only way that you need to survive. And cycling back to sleep, like that's, I think, what makes, which creates this terror around not being able to sleep. And therefore, this whole concept of actually, I'm just going to stop doing that is, you know, I can understand why there's a movement mm. around it. But the the problem is, is that in theory, if the stopping also meant that you then, then didn't move your body at all, you would then get psychologically ill. That's my point. Yeah. It's so we can think about that, the need for sleep as like, that's a constriction of freedom, which is re- related to human needs. So it's not a constriction of freedom. Whereas like the work where it's a constriction of freedom uh, associated not with human need, but the need of capital to grow. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's probably the distinction. Yeah. If you wanted to make a, a sort of idea of freedom around it, which includes the freedom to choose the amount of sleep that suits your body or something like that. Perhaps we'd put it that way. I don't know. And when you and when you do work mm. and how and how you do it and who you do it with and where you do it, which you don't have the freedom of at all if you're, you know, working for capital.
There's a couple of tracks I got which are instrumentals, which both call themselves Lullaby. And obviously the idea of the lullaby, the song, the piece of music, which is designed to lull the child to sleep, is is an interesting idea and quite a charming idea in some ways. One track we could play along those lines is John Coltrane's Russian Lullaby from the early 60s album Soul Train. I mean, it's quite high energy. It's not much of a lullaby. I don't know why it's a lullaby. I don't know what Russian lullaby it's based on. I should have researched that. And another lullaby tune, which I am very fond of, would be Luther's Lullaby, which is a track by the American New Age guitarist, Alex Degrassi. That is from 1978. And it's a very early Wyndham Hill Records release. Although Wyndham Hill became associated with not the most commercial, but the more commercial wing of new age music. And it's going to be seen as quite uncool. I've always loved Alex Degrassi. He's a technically very proficient guitarist. It's sort of fascinating that somebody, I've always found it fascinating that somebody could be that technically gifted and be using this very, very technical, you know, multi multi-fingered guitar picking style to uh, produce music which is just aggressively pleasant it's just intensively aggressively nice uh, and listenable and i do sort of love it and this is a nice example that luther's lullaby from his album turning turning back We're being very pro-sleep here, but obviously, <laughs> you, know, you know, sleep is historically a metaphor often for delusion and inactivity and apathy. And part of the problem with that over-fetishization of, of non-work or idleness or laziness, well, I say it's part of the problem, but I think most of the people who've been in favour of it have been quite conscious of what they were doing, is that is it goes against the historical grain of activist culture like within social movements, within political mo- movements, because generally speaking, the position of the activist, even in the most minimal, minimally conceived sense, whether you're talking about a trade unionist or people working in a party or some other kind of movement, and this goes back hundreds of years, the position of the activist is as someone who feels that they are more conscious of the issues and more energetically engaged in trying to address them than most people. And, and part of what they're trying to do is persuade people to become more conscious of the whatever issues they're concerned with and more actively engaged with them. If you go back to the 19th century, yeah, there's a strong overlap between the socialist movement and the, the prohibition and teetotal movements. We talked about this eight years ago on the show. Because people thought of intoxication and drunkenness as tools of the ruling class, as luring people into complacency. The vacuous, vacuous hedonism. Yeah, well, I think it's complacency. I think complacency is an interesting idea here. I I remember thinking from a very young age that the way to understand the, the sort of affective, psychosocial disposition of some of somebody who had some kind of politics and the people who didn't was more to do with a sense of complacency or a lack of complacency i think that thing in myself which doesn't want to sleep too much and doesn't want to spend too much time relaxing is really about a kind of horror of complacency a fear that it is complacency is the thing which is going to lure people into complicity with ongoing capitalist exploitation and the destruction of the planet etc so I think it's interesting to think about, well, how do you have a positive attitude towards relaxation, leisure, idleness, sleep? How do you have positive relationships to those things without ending up 
just endorsing a sort of apathetic complacency. I mean, I think that is that you know that's a really interesting framing. It's really good. I love I love that what you've just said, Jeremy. But I think I think there is an, actually an answer to it, which is I mean, capitalism is opposed to us luxuriating over time with doing other things, right? So like long protracted conversations on a sofa with your loved one, or like a really really long walk or a 24-hour rave, and it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be a daytime rave. I'm very <laughs> pro that, you know. Well, I think we're going to talk about leisure a bit later, but all of these things like come up against capitalism and ha- have its limits. And so I think what you it sounds like you're getting at is that is, we're talking about how much time are you putting into actively opposing capitalism as opposed to living in an anti-capitalist way? Because they're both forms of protest, right? One is the Gandhi... Gandhi's position and 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 the other one is that of the vanguard party about what action is well that's true i'm i'm not sure i believe in the idea of living in an anti-capitalist way i think that's a thing people believe themselves to be doing when they're actually doing nothing much <laughs> but i mean a lot of people there there's a i mean i, I know what you're I, I know what you're saying but a lot of people's idea of their way of fighting the system is that they are going to opt out and do things in a way that they think is et- ethical. This is yeah, a I know. widespread I know it view. Is, yeah, but we've, we've talked about this loads of times on the show. I think that's largely delusional. There okay. are very limited circumstances under which that might be a, an, an accurate description of what they're doing. But actually, mostly I think it's delusional because capitalism can happily accommodate their diversification of lifestyle as long as they're not organising with other people to try to challenge the yeah. class relations that organize it and just anecdotally you know most of the people i knew i i knew who in the late 80s were into like situationist slogans and claiming to be to have just to be opting out of capitalism in some sense ended up working in advertising in the 90s so i don't i'm not i'm not that convinced about it but that's i don't think anyone's saying anything different though really i think it, it it's more i think what's more interesting in some ways is thinking about these sort of metaphors yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the way in which the me- the metaphor of wakefulness has historically it's been really important. Again, we talked about this on a really early show when we talked about consciousness raising. Metaphors of wakefulness are really important within both spiritual traditions and political traditions. So the term woke, you know, it originates as a term describing you know people who are regarded as being politically conscious and. And I think that is it is interesting. And I think part of the sort of polemical purpose of this show is not to say that's necessarily bad, that's wrong, but also to say, well, let's not be too complicit with a discourse which doesn't recognise the human need for sleep and the value of sleep and the value of rest and, and repose. Because there is this compl- you know, danger of, of complicity. We've already talked about it a bit, but it, clearly it is a real, it's a real feature of like Silicon Valley culture, this life hacking ideal that you, you can be like Margaret Thatcher and mm. get by on four hours of sleep and be hyperproductive and like sleep is for losers. And if you take the right sets of smart drugs and hormones and modify your circadian rhythms in just the right way, you can get by on two to three hours of sleep and become a, a champion CEO by spending 22 hours a day working on your company. And, yeah, maybe meditating for an hour. I honestly, I, I I think one of the phantasmatic sources of a lot of this idea is the fact that elves in Tolkien and Kling and uh, Vulcans in Star Trek like don't sleep, and it I like love it, this. they don't sleep. <laughs> no, it's mentioned. It's mentioned early on somewhere in the original series of Star Trek about Vulcans, and it's definitely mentioned and made clear about elves in Tolkien that they don't have to sleep. They just they just meditate for a couple of hours a night and that's all they have to do is sleep. And I'm no I've got absolutely no question in my mind that that has implanted in the minds of like now two generations of geeks the idea yeah that that's what I want to do. That's how to be super successful. I'm just going to I'm going to learn mindfulness and take smart drugs and then I won't ever have to sleep. And I think that is it's a problem but it's also a problem if you are reproducing sort of notions of absolute organic, you know, natural, biologically determined behaviour and you don't acknowledge the extent to which those things are changeable. You can think about the philosopher Catherine Malibu, the French philosopher, who sees herself as a sort of anarchist, but also sees that anarchist politics as consistent with her emphasis on the importance of 
trying to understand the political and philosophical implications of what she calls plasticity, which is really related to the neurological idea of the neuroscientific idea of neuroplasticity, the the sense simply that humans and their bodies and their brains are changeable and can change themselves and are not simply fixed and given and don't have a singular ahistorical essence. And so I think there's a tension. I think a lot of what we're talking about here today is this tension from a radical perspective between, on the one hand, you know, the way we sleep changes over time. It's subject to circumstances. It, it is changeable. You know, it's socially changeable. And because it's changeable, because it's historically variable, we could change it. We could figure out what might be the best, most optimal way for us to be able to sleep and the one that would facilitate the most creativity and the most sociality and the most conviviality and pleasure. But on the other hand, we also don't want to be complicit with the fact that capitalism is the greatest engine for transforming people's sleep patterns in history. And the, what, what it ultimately wants to do is just deprive us of sleep. As Jonathan Crary, the art critic, said in, that, in his book 24-7, you know, he's a really interesting sort of polemical book, 24-7, uh, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. And his point is that contemporary capitalist culture with its you know 24-7, non-stop, city that never sleeps, rolling news, you know, always on, always have never turned your phone off kind of culture, just absolutely mitigates against sleep and militates against sleep and doesn't want people to be able to sleep. So all of these things are true at the same time. And it does create a situation in which it can be quite difficult to, to navigate. You know, back on the theme of complacency, I, I tend to think my number one, my bottom line, the first thing I always want to say to people about sleep, and this is very much related to my so attitude to exercise, is actually the most dangerous thing for most people or the, the thing that most people I think knew that it's, it would be good if more people could overcome is complacency about sleeplessness. It's just accepting that there's not really anything you can do about the fact that people are getting really bad sleep. People are really stressed out. They're getting health problems. They're getting mental health problems because I think depriving us of sleep, which is of course is a kind of torture. It's going to slow torture. I do sort of buy the idea that the capitalist machine, mostly what it's doing with people today, is depriving us of sleep. And by depriving us of sleep, it's making us physically weaker and psychologically weaker in ways which facilitates our exploitation. So I think it is important to get sleep. It is important to, for us to sort of take control of the situation. But the first stage of taking control of the situation is recognising that some, some other, another, an inhuman force has already taken control of our sleep or, or our ability to sleep when and where we want. And that is, you know, that is capitalism. We are all tired all the time. That's the generalised sort of state that's been everybody is at every moment. But that's sort of a generalised state of tiredness. And like one of the affects of a generalised state of tiredness is compliancy, <laughs> acting in, in a way which is like more habitual and like, you know, taking the easiest path. So that's another way of thinking about um, about uh, wokefulness. Complacency. No, well, mm-hmm. wokefulness. Or, or, or like what is, what, is the, what is the analysis behind this idea of wokefulness? It's really hard to talk about woke now because the right have weaponised it, etc. But you're right, Jem, you talked earlier. We, we talk about people having political awakenings. That means they must have been asleep in some sort of metaphorical way beforehand. And like that sleep is probably something to do with, you know, people basically acting uh, habitually. And in fact, you, one of the favorite Gilbert um, ways of talking about hegemony is to say that like, you know, the hegemonic block will will provide a sort of path of least resistance for fruit down which a a life will flow, basically, which accords with their interests. You know, so that is, that is probably, that is what people are getting at when we talk, talk about people, we associate people who are not awake, politically awake, as like basically people who are who, who are following the path that is set out for them in life. Do you know what I mean? And in fact, yeah, yeah. last last wake up, people, get wake some up, sleep, sheeple. and go to yeah, sleep. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a weird, there's a weird, also conspiracy theory. But there's a weird, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like it as a way of, of talking about. It. But there is a there's this this thing of like, yeah, we our analysis is you're all asleep basically by acting habitually. But of course, the affect of tiredness is basically to base to, is to be compliant and just follow along and and do things. But basically. that shows you how much of an insult it is because it nobody wants to think about themselves as quote unquote sheeple no right whatever that means nobody <laughs> does so it's so it's so from a communications perspective like it's a terrible tactic which is yeah but that's say, why the right have said have, have seized on this word woke basically because implicitly it's got a patronizing attitude towards um the it not is. woke it's terribly patronizing yeah, so that's why right. they've seized on it and, and elevated it to their main insult you know 
Actually, there's a song by Jumbo Wumba that's really appropriate to what we've been discussing. I know we've played Jumbo Wumba a couple of times already on this show. You know, let's give that a pass. They're friends of mine, so they 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 will come up. Uh, the song is called "I Wish That They'd Sack Me." It's a, a lovely little song. It's off their album. Um, the boy bands have won from 2008, and it's sort of like a little folk song. Uh, the the lyrics are really what we're talking about. They go uh, five days of seven. The week's hardly mine. My alarm clock's gone over to enemy lines. I spend my days sowing what others will reap. I wish that they'd sack me and leave me to sleep. You know, it's totally on that that weaponization of drowsiness, militant, almost angry drowsiness, that anti-work uh, weaponization of drowsiness that we talked about in relation to the poster, uh, the, the I, I didn't go to work today poster. It's not surprising, actually, because the Chumbas are also friends with Brian, who produced that poster. We're all part of the same, the same scene. Anyway, pot pickers, here's Chumbawamba provoking militant slumber with their 2008 non-hit, I Wish That They'd Sack Me. Six in the morning, don't want to wake Sun laying low and the world sleeping late Hate like the river runs heavy and deep Oh, I wish that they'd sack me and leave me to sleep I think we could move on from there to talk about, you know, staying up, like not sleeping and, and this idea of that as something that's pleasurable and desirable I mean, from the beginning of this show, because we were talking about collective joy and because I run club nights and I've written about rave and we're, we're interested in all that stuff, people often assume that we're really into, we're into raving, we're into staying up all night, partying and fighting for our right to party and not sleeping till Brooklyn. And this is something everybody, uh, you know, everybody who I do all this stuff with knows about me is that I hate staying up all night. I hate the fact, and I have hated the fact since I was 20 that rave culture and dance culture mostly revolves around staying up all night. I think it's just a mistake. I mean, I'll say I'll do it. I'm not saying don't come to my all night parties because <laughs> do it's fun, but I mean, I've evolved a really specific set of practices, which enable me to, to sort of recover from those really quickly. And like, that's partly why they're not drinking, not doing drugs, just doing a lot of yoga, like going to bed when I get home and going to bed early the next day. And it's very, very specific. And Apart from doing that, which I've really had to train myself to do over decades, uh, I'd really hate staying up all night. And I wish, in my ideal world, we wouldn't be putting on those parties at, like till five or six in the morning. We'd be doing them in the daytime. Like, we'd start at like 11, uh, 12, 1 in the afternoon, maybe after lunch, and just carry on until 10, and then everybody could go to bed. Because I think it's just ridiculous. I mean, simply from the point of view of safe, creative drug use, I mean, it's just a medical fact. If you're taking something like MDMA or other drugs, like stimulant drugs or psychedelics, and you're taking them after your normal bedtime, then a large proportion of what the drug is being used for is fighting your body and brain's desire for sleep and, and counteracting the effect of the stress hormones, which staying up late generates in massive quantities. Uh, you honestly will just have a much better time if you don't do that. You have a much better time if you take those drugs at other times, you know, when you're not trying, when your body doesn't want to go to sleep. There is this whole cultural idea that you have to do that sort of stuff. You have to do that stuff at night. You have to do it outside the daytime because the daytime is the, the sphere of normality. It's a, and it's the, de it's the sphere of work. It's the sphere and the of, conservative people and the losers. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah, the it's when the squares are, are, are Exactly. Are up. The squares are out. And I just think it, it is a form of complacency for me. It's a form of complicity with capitalism's insistence that all of our daytime existence must be taken up with work or with tedious forms of social reproduction uh, and can't possibly be occupied with, uh, with, with bliss and joy and ecstasy. You know, capitalism insists on that and we buy into it to the extent that we can't imagine like relaxing, cutting loose, letting go, feeling free on the dance floor any other time i really don't like it i really really don't like it i mean thinking like this there's lots and lots of people especially like our age like the vast majority of people 
don't think of things like club culture and dance culture as accessible to them anymore because it's just taken for granted. The only way you can do that is if you can sort of afford in your life to lose a whole night's sleep, which most people, it's just generally accepted. If you've got kids, for the reasons I set out at the beginning of the show, you just don't have the hours in the week to spare to be able to even possibly contemplate like voluntarily losing a night's sleep. And... I think that makes it sort of inaccessible to people in a way it doesn't have to be. So I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I hate that. And I think there's, if you if you trace the origins of that kind of stay up all night culture in, in Britain, it really originates in Northern Seoul, the Northern Seoul dance scene of the 70s, which is exciting and interesting and intriguing for lots of reasons. But this was a dance culture and a dancing that revolved entirely around people taking loads of amphetamines. And amphetamines, you know, I'm sure one can make an argument for there being creative uses of amphetamines, but basically they're drugs that were invented to keep Nazi soldiers awake, you know, so they could kill people. And there's this whole continuity between the kind of culture around amphetamines and the kind of macho, aggressive energy that they're designed to generate in people and the fact they're designed to to either make people thin and comply to a sort of certain kind of ideal body type, because amphetamines were marketed in the post-war period mainly as slimming pills, or to just keep people awake so they can kill people or work for days at a time in that sleep. There's just there's something about a culture which has historically has its roots in using those. Uh, are we putting speed and just are we putting speed and MDMA in the same catchment here? No. Well, I, this okay. is an interesting question. I would. This is based on really casual observations because, like, I haven't taken MDMA for like decades. I never even I've never liked it that much. I know that's sort of sacrilegious thing to say for a lot of people, but. I would say, based on casual observations, but also on based on things like reading the kind of annual reports about drug use and about the drugs that are in circulation in the markets, which I've always tried to do, like keeping an eye on the historical development of that scene. We were saying this when we were preparing the show. I mean, I think it was it was much more normal, like when we were a lot younger, when Kira and I were like in our twenties. I think it was much more normal than I think it is now for people to go out raving for like an entire weekend. Weekend, and that's uh, most. And that's and that was inherited from Northern Seoul, but that was because most of the pills people were taking were cut with speed, and people were, or people were just supplementing MDMA with speed. And right, okay, because I was just trying to g- define terms. Yeah, and it it did become really noticeable to me that once like pure MDMA became much cheaper and much more widely available, and once amphetamine sort of became much less widely consumed, become much more normal amongst younger people. You know, this um, this riff is a great excuse to play Weekender by Flower Dove. But that is that's the total epitome of that like nineties. Basically, you know, you you go out all weekend and like we you live you're on it. You live for the weekend basically, and the week is a blur where you're doing meaningless, you know, your meaningless work, etc. And the only thing you're excited about is staying up all weekend. But what's worse, doing that or like interdispersing precarious work where you're on all the time with scrolling through your phone and chatting with people because mm. you're unable to have whole, you know segments of time or the day to yourself yeah but i think i think people sort of thought about that weekender culture as a sort of resistance to capitalism as resistance to to your whole life being dominated by work and it was a particularly effective resistance but you know you have to recognize there was a big politicization of rave in the 90s etc primarily because it got cracked down on by the government and by the police and all that sort of stuff well it's true but but the most politicized wing of it it involved the connections between the emergent rave culture and the festival scene and the festival the free festivals historically had not been about there had been about like dancing and partying in the daytime in the countryside yeah but like spiral tribe and all of that lot were like we won't they're all on speed and we won't sleep for like five six days or something like yeah that. i know they were absolutely scary yeah. mofos as well <laughs> I think we should play the fantastic song Insomnia by Faithless. It's a 1995 uh, track that's got this amazing energy.
Yeah, I love that insomnia, that faithless track insomnia as well. But that it's like an ode to the to the come down insomnia, you know, that inability to fall asleep because you're so wired and all that sort of stuff. Really relates actually to a lot of what we were saying about um, about raving through the nighttime. song about insomnia we should probably mention is i'm so tired by the beatles it's actually a john lennon song of the white album the white album which is of course well recognized as the best beatles album ever (laughs) but the lyrics are you know i'm so tired i haven't slept a wink i'm so tired my mind is on the blink i wonder should i get up and fix myself a drink No, no, no I'm so tired I don't know what to do I'm so tired My mind is set on you I wonder should I call you But I know what you would do I read that um, Jonathan Crary book this week that 24 7 and that opens with this vignette about a, a bird that um what is it the white crowned sparrow or something so this is this bird that when it's migrating can stay awake for seven days straight basically the, the u.s department of defense darpa their research institute spent loads of money trying to trying to sort of study this to sort of could we work, learn how to like crack sleep so that your body doesn't need sleep Rather than like the, the, the could we become elves? Could we become elves? <laughs> could we become Vulcans? I, I really, really would not be surprised if that was one of the I'm sure one of the research department's names. <laughs> yeah, because like basically, because because you, you already mentioned it, Jim, about um, about speed has been this this really huge tool, particularly in, the, in World War Two, where you know troops on both sides were given. Uh, and particularly pilots and stuff were given speed to keep them up and and to keep going for days on end and all that sort of stuff. But the problem with that is that that doesn't over that 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 stimulates a, a, a alertness or whatever or awakeness, but it, it doesn't overcome the body's need for sleep. So you pay a hefty price later on, as did people at Spiral Tribe <laughs> parties and all that sort of stuff. So you know there and there, there's there's huge literatures about like. You know, loads and loads of people, loads of people uh, take speed at work in order to get through arduous work routines. Is Ritalin in that class? It's, it, is an, it is an amphetamine, yeah. It's not speed, but yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, you know, there's there's a whole, you know, obviously in, in the US, there's a whole culture mm. of like people taking pills, as an, obviously, which is... Terrible, I think. Uh, just popping yeah. pills for all sorts you know, of reasons. That's a really but... good point. I mean, that that is a direct descendant. That's a direct descendant, I think, of mm. that mid mid century, mid twentieth, mid to late twentieth century amphetamines culture. Because that was, I mean, amphetamines were like the performance enhancing drugs of the early, mm. you know, from like the nineteen twenties to the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Of course, before that, like Coke, Coke was mm. like Freud, Sigmund Freud, a young Sigmund Freud wrote a paper. He wrote a paper about how cocaine was this miracle yeah, drug. Yeah. Because it was a performance enhancer, because it keeps you awake and it, and it like super caffeine, it enhances your cognitive facilities. That's why Conan Doyle had uh, Sherlock Holmes addicted to cocaine. People always think it's opium because they that's what they think of now. But it was in the stories Sherlock Holmes is addicted to coke. I always say it's one of the most it's one of the one of the definite signs that we live in a sick and diseased culture that we turned cocaine, which is an anaesthetic and a work drug, like we've turned it into the leisure drug. It's a it's a it's a symptom of a sick society. It, it drug it's a drug that was designed to to let people do loads of work and to um and to be an anaesthetic, like to dull the senses. So anyway, you're right. Yeah, that's my you're right. We should, we should stick to bathtub speed. That's what. We need. <laughs> <laughs> but then speed then speed becomes the performance enhancing drug, and that's like the Northern Soul parties. They're all taking these pills, which are like robbed from pharmacies and stuff. It's not that they, they haven't got like meth labs. They're just there's a huge industry. Then speed's being prescribed like to housewives, the slimming pills. It's being prescribed to anyone who goes to the doctor and says, oh, "I'm a bit tired." You get prescribed, you know, amphetamine pills. 
But then, yeah, Ritalin and the, the whole uh, the whole kind of ADD diagnosis industry. Overdiagnosis, yeah. Mm. I always like using that as a teaching example for students when talking about teaching Foucault or something like that, because it's a really interesting example of how the line between phenomena being purely socially constructed or having some actual biophysical reality is a blurry line because on the one hand you can say most ADD diagnoses have just isolated a set of behaviours which are perfectly normal in the people they're being isolated in and can easily be explained by lifestyle features like they don't get enough exercise, they have too much sugar, they watch too much TV etc. And you can easily say that from that from that point of view, like most ADD is fictional and shouldn't be treated pharmacologically. On the other hand, once you are in a society where what you will do if that diagnosis is made is you will give people very powerful uh, amphetamine, you know, super advanced amphetamines that will affect their brain chemistry very powerfully, like very immediately, then it becomes a material reality. It becomes a physical thing. Yeah, and the, pe- the the pendulum approach to drugs has a huge effect on sleep. If we're going to go back to, you know, pointing on the subject is that if you're having, you know, the caffeine to wake you up, you know, alcohol to help you relax, you know, it's just that whole like Ritalin for this. And then, you know, I don't know, Prozac for that or whatever, that will affect your sleep horrendously. Yeah, but, but also sleeping pills were the other side of this. Yes, I mean, the yes. other side of this is the history of sleeping pills, the medication. I mean, there was this huge, there was this epidemic of people being prescribed powerful barbiturates, like for decades in the 20th century. <clears throat> and we can play the fall song, Roach Rumble, which is a sort of protest song about uh, the overprescription of mood-altering medication, especially Valium. Roach! I'm sure there's there's listeners to the show who are, who are, are not in the UK, you know, you in the US. I mean, people still say, like, casually say, I took a Valium, I took half a Valium, you know, it's what people do. I mean, people take it in the UK as well. Yeah, they do. Yeah, people take Xanax all the time. Loads of people take Xanax. And I mean, all that's happened is these things have been replaced by much more sophisticated uh, drugs. You know, they've been much more sophisticated ones that don't have the same uh, recreational capacities, you know, f- for the most part. I mean, one doesn't want to write it off. I mean, I've got close friends who, are, you know, take antidepressants and they are beneficial to them. So, I, it, again, it's one of these phenomena where we want to avoid being like censorious and avoid denying that it has benefits for some people. But you have to look at the macro data as well. You know, my attitude to all of those drugs is a bit like your attitude to um, to agriculture, Jeremy. It, <laughs> it was a terrible mistake, but it's too late now. Let's dive in and <laughs> go through the other side. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Well, it's probably interesting that sleep deprivation is this really prominent form of torture. Basically, I think it's always been it's always been used as a form of torture, but like it really took off it in the post nine eleven era in the US, where enhanced interrogations. I think the the, te- the word was, uh, you know. Re- basically became this this really this form of like really programmed activity there was a guy one of the most documented well documented cases it's in the it's in the John Crary book is this guy called Mohammed El Katani who basically was kept awake for 2 months or as much as they could possibly keep him awake for 2 months at the same time he was subject to like waterboarding etc it sort of relates to this idea that when you're tired you're really compliant and all that that's what they get wanting to get out of them but like it produces in you this form of helplessness, basically, this tiredness produces in you this form of helplessness and, and, and compliance, but it's of absolutely no use for for extracting information, basically, because the person will tell you whatever they think you will want to hear in order for you to leave them alone so they can get some get some sleep. It's sort of like an extreme experiment to give us some indication of what the role that the broaden role that sleep plays in maintaining, uh, helping us maintain a sense of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Of like processing our experiences and and be able to become active. Do you know what I mean? So perhaps that answer to the, the to the whole woke thing is, you know, if you want people to become active and conscious and self reflective, well, they have to have enough sleep. Do you know what I mean? So let let the non woke sleep more fully, and then they will become woke. I think that's where I'm going with this. <laughs> this is. Anti-fast. 